podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So for those of you that have been tuning in over the last few episodes, thank you very much, by the way, you'll know that I'm hanging out in the great city of New York, and I've been going out of my way to hit as many restaurants and cafes as I can find. You do. Thank you. I haven't seen you in a long time. You have And when I knew I was coming to New York, the one person I was looking forward to catching up with the most is regular guest of this show, Taylor Pearson. He's the author of The End of Jobs, and someone who regularly writes and coaches people on how to be more productive in their day-to-day life. So that's what we're going to talk about on today's show. So after Taylor and I grabbed some lunch, we took a walk back to his great studio in the city and sat down and talked a little bit about productivity and the city in general. We're having like a New York day. Very New York day. It's 50 degrees in late April. It's cloudy. It's rainy. Can you describe the neighborhood that we're in? It's called Brooklyn Heights. What's it like? It's like the second neighborhood in Brooklyn if you're coming south out of Manhattan. It's a lot of these old brownstones, like three or four stories. Probably used to be like hotels or houses and have been converted into studio apartment buildings for the most part. It's an old Middle Eastern neighborhood. We had lunch at the Sultan Cafe and Hookah Lounge, which had uh, yeah. some wonderful chicken shawarma. Yeah, it was great. There was like a group of retired men drinking wine and excitedly sharing stories of, of pension success and failures. At the Starbucks this morning, there were four older Jewish men discussing our recently elected president, his foreign policy, with very strong views on how he should be conducting his international relations. New Yorkers, for those of you who haven't visited, like everybody's entitled to their opinion in this city and they express it. Like it's amazing. Like I was on my bike the other day on the sidewalk and this guy, I don't know this guy. I don't know if he's not the cop of the sidewalk, but he walks up to me. He's like, Sir, sir, could you please take your bicycle off of the sidewalk? I'm like, Who is this guy? <laughs> the self appointed. But this is such a New York thing for me. Like everybody just lets it fly, you know? I feel like you have to. I was talking to someone that moved here. They said they've been moving back and forth from San Francisco and New York for like the last 20 years. He said, I was like, he's like, I'd be in San Francisco and I would just like feel too soft. And I would come to New York and I would just like get hard again. (laughs) It's just like, there's just so much friction. Like the subway's broken, the taxi driver's trying to screw you. There's just like so much friction. I think you develop a little bit of this like, nah, I'm just going to make it. What's the entrepreneurial scene like in New York? So a lot of like, ex-finance turned startup-y types. So that's like a very common profile. Like, oh, I was an investment banker for two years and now I run a B2B enterprise startup that sells whatever. People getting into the game. In terms of like listeners of this show, I know a lot of listeners of this show live in New York City. What's the vibe of, of like the more bootstrap lifestyle entrepreneurs that come to the city? I think a lot of people that were here already for work or... And they had jobs here and they ended up starting businesses and just stayed in New York. And I think there are 
just like the professional network, professional contacts is so huge. It's 15 million people. Every industry you could possibly imagine is here. Everybody comes through. The money's here. Yeah, every, you know, everyone flies through once a year. You mentioned it's a city for weak ties, not strong ties. What do you mean by that? It's really easy. It's to meet people. Like there's always something going on. There's always events going on. But like the friction again, like I want to meet with someone. They live three miles away. It's probably best case scenario, 30 minute subway in a walking plus subway trip. Getting on someone's calendar like less than two weeks in advance is just like good luck. You just can't, you know what I mean? You just can't. <laughs> I was like joking, showing you my calendar earlier, and it's like I'm like booked out for two weeks, and I'm like, why? It's like I feel like a total douchebag. Why am I booked out for two weeks? But everyone here is booked out for two weeks. So we're here in the beautiful studio apartment in New York City. It feels pretty cool to see you in so many different settings, continents. Like the fourth continent. Yeah. So today we got together to aside from each shawarma, to discuss productivity. A lot of people have been requesting just a good old-fashioned productivity episode, and you're one of the most productive people I've ever met. My calendar's booked out for two weeks. It's two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. That's how productive I am. <laughs> so let's talk then about, before we get into, I think, the biggest strategies that we've outlined that have had the biggest success over the years for you, a little bit about why productivity, you know, why talk about this stuff. The reason I got excited about it this year was towards the end of last year, I was feeling really anxious. It was anxiety that got me here, Taylor, because I was asking myself too many big questions. What should I do with my life? What should my next business be? How should I grow my business? How can I be a better entrepreneur? And all these big questions, I had a lot of horrible answers for. None of the answers were satisfying, you know? I mean, there's all these ideas and stuff that you should be doing. Oh, I should be making some investments. I should be doing this. I should make the podcast way better, you know? But then I would feel this sense of anxiety. I would go to Facebook. I would go to Twitter. I would see if there's answers there. There was nothing. Honestly, like my New Year's resolution was something like just work better. Like simplify your life. Stop being distracted by questions and other people's opinions and just do your work. And so I did this kind of renaissance in my life. I went back, I reread David Allen's Getting Things Done. I downloaded and read Cal Newport's Deep Work. I called Cal Newport for this podcast to ask him about it. And for me, it was like just back to productivity basics. When I look at successful people, they could be introverted, they could be extroverted, they could be tall, short, man, woman, you name the dichotomy. But it's very rare that you meet a successful person who doesn't get a lot done. It's a no downside thing, right? It's like, you never, you know, I'm just really, you meet someone and you're like, wow, that person is just super competent at getting stuff done. They're never going to go anywhere, right? It's like you can't. And I remember this when we were working together, like one of your things was. And we should mention that we worked together for many years. I don't know, not everybody knows the backstory that we worked together. So kind of one of the books that everyone read was David Allen's Getting Things Done, which was kind of the, maybe the like original personal productivity Bible. Like this was the book, everyone, you got to get on this system, right? Because all of a sudden you wake up and you got all this stuff flying in your face. You got invoices, you got angry vendors, you got clients that are complaining. How do you manage all this stuff? going on. And he helped you get back on top of all the open loops, he called them, in your head. I think part of what drove me into this, part of it was, you know, idle hands kind of thing after selling the business and stuff. But part of it was 
the handset revolution. Like David Allen wrote his book before you got notifications on your telephone. And so this was actually, I think, a big deal for me. And I think it contributed to anxiety. So it's like, well, why don't I just look at Facebook if I have a spare minute? Just see what's going on on Facebook. Why not? What's wrong with that? Why don't I get Slack notifications from my team? Because maybe I could uh, help them out while I'm out getting a hoagie at lunchtime. I just didn't analyze these sorts of things. What's the problem with looking at Instagram? Or is there a problem? I think we crossed this threshold. Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, has a great essay. One of his lines is, we are the first generation that will be defined by what we say no to. This idea of like information overload. You go back even to like David Allen's original getting things done, which he published maybe like late 80s, early 90s. And it's kind of just like, oh, yeah, just keep a running list of your to-dos. There won't be that many. He really doesn't capture the sense of like just how much stuff is flying in your face and how do you become a lot more disciplined, not about saying yes to things and getting things done, but getting the right things done and actually saying, how do you filter out all the stuff that's coming in to just get the core things done? Today's episode of the TMBA podcast is sponsored by Growth Ninja. Big shout out and thanks to the folks at growthninja.com. Are you looking for a reliable and hands-off way to scale your company's revenue? Take a look at Growth Ninja, a proven Facebook ad service. They'll handle your ads and audience targeting all the while actively optimizing your campaigns on a daily basis. Whether you're after lead generation or direct sales, Growth Ninja makes sure your Facebook ads are brutally effective. And here's the best part. Growth Ninja's fees are 100% performance-based. That means if you don't get paid, Growth Ninja doesn't get paid. They also offer a generous rewards program for any new clients you send their way. You'll receive 20% share of the monthly earnings your referral brings in. This means that some of the referrers are making thousands of dollars each month just from one simple intro email they sent ages ago. Go on. You know you want to check it out. Check out growthninja.com and mention the TMBA podcast for a special discounted rate. And again, a big thanks to Growth Ninja for sponsoring the show. So this episode today with Taylor Pearson is all about, let's just steal it from David Allen. Why not? The art of stress-free productivity. (laughs) Great subtitle. (laughs) Today, we're going to share four strategies that Taylor's tested and teaches to his students and talks about on his website. And these aren't things that you came up with and started a couple weeks ago. Like These are things that you've been employing to have great success over the course of years. So, And you're borrowing them from some of the great thinkers as well. So these aren't things that have just been tested in the cauldron of Taylor Pearson's super productive spirit, right? On my two-week booked out calendar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the first one then. So the first one is this idea of 90-day sprint. So I think one of the things... I used to really struggle with was you hear all this stuff about there's like this whole agile meme going around of like lean or agile or move fast and break things. And you kind of got to constantly be adjusting based on what's going on and, and adapting to the environment. So the idea is like be low cost. Don't invest a bunch in something that's not going to work. Right. And often how that ends up turning out is it's like shiny object syndrome is kind of the the flip side of this, right? Which is you're agile and you're moving whatever you're 
constantly looking what's going on. And so you end up just cycling projects, right? You have 14 open projects and you wake up in the morning and through some arbitrary criteria, you know, you pick one of them to work on. And so none of them ever makes meaningful progress. And so one of the ways to kind of deal with that is it's a lot easier to do things if you work in sequence than if you work in parallel, right? So if you have three things you're trying to get done in a week, if you know you do one, then the other, then the next, it's a lot easier than, you know, if you have three businesses and you're trying to work on each for two hours a day, that this like task switching mental RAM cost where you got to like remember all the stuff that was going on in the business or all the stuff that you were working on and get going on it. You end up spending most of your mental RAM, most of your energy on switching tasks, basically. This sounds like how you get papers done in college. This is cramming, right? Right. It's bringing the cram philosophy to, to your business. It's structured cramming or something <laughs> like that. There's a great book called The 12-Week Year by Brian Moran. And basically, this is the idea, which is if you take and you set you know, kind of like year-long goals, oftentimes what happened, they did a study with salespeople that they would make something like 60% of their sales in the fourth quarter, right? So you get started on the year. You're like, oh, I want to get my bonus, but it's January, it's February, got plenty of time. I got family commitments. Family commitments, maybe you grab a steak dinner, you know, no rush. And then you get to October and you're at, you know, 40% of your quota and you realize you got to hit your quota by the end of the year to get the bonus. And, you know, you start, they pick up the phones and they start going and going and going. And so when they set quarterly targets for salespeople, they had about 50% higher sales over the course of the year. Because, you know, 90 days just kind of psychologically, I think is this, it's close enough that you feel a certain sense of urgency, like something you got to get done in 12 weeks, like you need to start working on now. But it's also enough time that you can actually make progress towards it. So instead of kind of this shiny object flipping back and forth between four or five, you know, four projects over the course of a year, break them up into 90 day sprints where you're saying, okay, you know, these are the four things I want to get launched this year. I'm going to launch this one in Q1, this one in Q2, this one in Q3, this one in Q4. I like it. And don't let that stop you from being even more granular with it, right? Once you have your 90 day goal laid out, then you kind of backfill your sequence and you're going to have weekly review meetings. And in our case, what we've implemented this year are daily standing meetings. So it's like, okay, we, we know our launch date's this. What do we want to get done by end of day here? You know, what needs to be the deliverable? And that's actually been much, it's a similar concept, but it's, it's helped me be more productive doing a daily catch up. And what I used to do is a bi-weekly catch-up. And what I found is like things would like sort of log jam throughout the week and get in this like strange like procrastination delivery cycle. It's like, oh, the meeting's on Thursday, so I'll start it Thursday morning. And then the Thursday meeting would go extra long because it was all this stuff that sort of built up. And then the same cycle would repeat itself. So what we found is like by recalibrating every day for five to 10 minutes, it's cut down on our total meeting time by having a little bit more frequency. I think momentum is a very, there's like a great book to be written on momentum. I don't have an idea for what goes <laughs> in it yet, but like that rhythm, right? You talk every day or you have this kind of like consistent momentum progress where every week, you know, you check off, you know, you can see this is the quarterly sales thing. And every week you hit your calls number, every week you hit your demos number, and you can kind of see this momentum build towards whatever the ultimate goal is. So again, as a refresher, the first point, can you describe it one more time? Is operate in 90-day sprints. So whatever you kind of laid out for your yearly goals, break this down. Instead of trying to do three projects at the same time over the course of the year or four projects at the same time over the course of the year, figure out how you can hack them down into 
90 day projects and use that as a constraint. You know, when I was writing the book and I'm working on another book now, try and break it down into 90 day chunks. So 90 days to get the first draft done, another 90 days to get the edit done, another 90 days to sell the proposal, however you can bake the project down. But instead of saying like, oh, I'm just going to write a book this year. And I'm going to grow a service business on the side and I'm going to do this. And it can be a little tricky because sometimes conceptually, if you say you're going to do four things at the beginning, that's kind of a little bit more satisfying than saying, I'm just going to do one thing and then see if it works or breaks and put off the other things. And I think a lot of it too is you kind of want to emotionally hedge. We're going to talk about this more later, but you know, if you have two things going on and one doesn't work out, you could say, oh, well, I wasn't really working on that thing anyway. I was actually working on this other thing. So I think a lot of the the resistance to focusing on one thing is emotional, right? It's like, oh, well, if I'm working on this one thing and this thing doesn't work out, then I'm a failure. All right. What's point number two? Plan with goals, build with habits. Okay. So you've kind of got your 90-day thing laid out here. You know what you want to break down. Figure out how to turn that from a outcome-based goal. So let's say you have a, a sales number you want to hit. How do you break that down into habits you can track on a week-to-week basis, right? Because a lot of these projects, it's very hard to tell if you're on track, right? You know, if you have a sales goal for 12 weeks, you could like set a lot of appointments this week and not make any sales, right? Lead and lag indicators are the way I like to think of it. So like your sales goal is going to be a lagging indicator. Like that's the thing that matters, but you don't have a very tight feedback loop, right? It could take you a long time, you know, Like body on... weight is like this. Right. Like if you eat like crap, like last week on vacation, you're going to get fat this week, not (laughs) last week. So that's a lagging indicator. Exactly. Whereas like, you know, you can figure out what your basal metabolic rate is. I know I burn 2,500 calories a day. So that's a leading indicator. Right. So if I'm eating 2,200 calories a day, I know over time I'm going to lose weight. So the point again is you have this goal, which is you want to increase sales, say, but the question in which you could track on a daily basis isn't how many sales we had that day. It's more, have we developed habits that are going to ultimately lead to that goal? This is something we were struggling with today. I had this exact conversation with Ian this morning. I was like, the problem is, is if you tell this team member to behave in order to affect that goal directly, they'll do the wrong things. Does that make sense? Because they could get into bad habits in order to inflate the progress to the goal. So an example of that might be, let's say you have an email list and the goal is to convert, you know, 5% of them to customers over the course of the first quarter. Well, if you're only tracking the lagging indicator, you might start using high pressure sales tactics that first week in order to get the 5% conversion rate. The problem with that is that you burn out your list and then next quarter, you won't be able to hit a similar or increased goal. So you need to ask yourself, like, what's a habit that I could execute on a daily basis that over the course of my, you know, goal timeframe, I'm going to meet our goals, but that habit is a sustainable practice. Totally. So that's the problem that we've had is, of course, we want certain things in the business and you put, we want more subscribers for our our blog. Well, are you going to start putting pop-ups all over the site? Like you couldn't blame an employee for suggesting that if that's what you put in front of people, right? So you kind of have this conversation at the front end of like, okay, we want to get more subscribers for our blog. What are the habits we need to put in place that we're comfortable with and that line up with all the, the other parameters, which is like, we don't want to 
you know, yeah, we could get really aggressive pop-ups or you could get really aggressive sales emails or sales calls or whatever. But you know, if you make that a habit and you do that for two years, you're going to burn through people. This kind of strategy can work really well when it comes to broader life goals too. I mean, I can recall a story about you, if you don't mind me telling it. You were really busy doing sales for a software startup. So you spent your weeks, tell me this is a false telling of your story, but I recall you doing these really businessy things all day long. Like you're an awesome sales guy. You're basically a CEO of the company. And then on Sundays, you'd kind of like bail out from the social circle and you'd write an article every Sunday and you'd publish it even if it was crap. Your reasoning was, well, I want to be an author someday and authors have the habit of writing. So if I don't do that, then I'll never reach my goal of being a writer. That was like my commitment to the craft kind of thing, which is like, okay, I don't have 20 hours a week to do this, but I've got two or three hours on a Sunday morning. It's hard to imagine someone that's, you know, published 500 articles that like isn't a decent writer, right? Like that would be a very difficult thing. It would be hard to make a thousand sales calls and not at least get to decent at sales. This is so cool to me because, you know, it's easy to get pumped up about goals. It's easy to get that emotional rah-rah stuff going, but what gets it done is habits. So I enjoy this connection. And in fact, I'm going to take that challenge on this week to see if I can turn some of my goals into more organizational habits, as opposed to just keep kind of putting this goal in front of people that, well, yeah, if you can't define effective, repeatable habits that would lead to the goal, then it can become the opposite of motivating after a while. It can become really frustrating and alienating, I guess. And especially, I think, you start to blame yourself as opposed to the habits. You start to put pressure on someone else. Talking, going back to the software company you mentioned, one of the things that happened there was we realized we had a... This was Valley Up. We should mention it because we actually talked about it quite a bit on the show, and we will link to those episodes. It was a failure, but it, we learned a lot by being bonehead guys who wanted to have a software company. Right. And we had the customer list for the software company was based on your e-commerce business. And so we were reaching out to those people. And obviously, we wanted to do that in a way that maintained that relationship. And so what we found was basically there were problems with the software product and that getting more and more aggressive with the sales was, it was only going to alienate existing customers of an existing business. And so, hey, okay, we did 100 demos and these converted at, you know, 20% of what we wanted them to convert at. What's going on here? And it's not that there was something wrong with the customers, or there was something wrong with the demos. I'm sure they both could have been better, but right, the problem was we had a product problem and kind of going through this habit, right, of, okay, we're going to do 100 demos and then we're going to sit down and look at, you know, what's the data we've gotten? What's the feedback we've gotten? And then reassess. All right, the third strategy. So the, the first strategy, let's recap. The first strategy is? 90-day sprints. Second? Plan with goals, build with habits. And the third strategy we're going to introduce? Is rocks, pebbles, sand. The story is there's a professor. He's standing in front of his classroom, and he's got a mason jar that he's holding in his hand. And on the table, there's a jar of pebbles, a jar of rocks, and a jar of sand. And so... He says, what most people do is first they fill up their lives with all the little things and he pours some of the sand into the jar, right? So this is kind of like administrative stuff you have to do. Your accountant's bothering you and you got to fill out this form and you got to get the bank thing sorted and you got to get your logo done. You got to pick up the mail. You got to do laundry. It's a, you put all that in. So that's your sand. And then, you know, yes, yeah, so you got some meetings you got to take care of. 
these are kind of important. You know, you got to meet with people. Your investor wants an email about the performance of the company. You promise you're going to call back John. You got to give John a call. And so you put that into your yeah, week. You got a Tinder date on Saturday night. That's a definitely a pebble. Essential. Not- <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of put in all what I would like, kind of like this like managerial work, right? Stuff that you're working not on the business, but you're working in the business. Kind of stuff to just keep operations going. And you get to the end of this, you put in all these little tasks, these little pieces of sand. You kind of put in all this managerial pebbles and you've got these rocks, these big important things that are going to move the company forward. Rock might be drafting a policy document, creating a process for recognizing and caring for your top 5% of your customers. It might mean making progress on an important deal or writing a blog post if you're doing content marketing for your business. Right. The Sam Carpenter, author of Work the System, his metaphor is you have firefighters and fire prevention specialists, right? So the pebbles and the sand are the firefighting, right? You're just dealing with all the stuff that's coming up and you're just putting down putting down the fires. So you never spend any time doing fire prevention, right? Actually putting in place the policies or putting in place the systems that are prevent these fires from keep coming up. And so what you do is you just end up putting out these fires and putting out these same types of fires, over and over because that's what your that's what your calendar fills up with. You know, you're right. like me and you got two weeks scheduled out and you got nothing actually moving forward. Me and Ian this morning were like, why aren't we meeting our KPIs? Why aren't we meeting Hey, just want to zoom in here to say that a KPI stands for a key progress indicator. And thanks to Google, I can read you a short definition. It's a measurable value that demonstrates how effectively a company is achieving key business objectives. Why aren't we meeting our KPIs? And what we should do is say Let's clear the time to put a rock in, and that rock's going to be a strategy that's going to be a 90-day sprint about a, a hypothesis we have about what would sort out the KPIs rather than just talking about it and trying to react to the day-to-day pebbles that are coming in kind of thing. Right. So you figure out your habit rocks, and you put those in first, right, when you're planning out your week. Let's talk about some of the ways that you do this. So the biggest one for me is writing. That's kind of like my, that's my rock habit that's working. That's how you make your money, right? That's how I make my money. But it's long-term, right? You know, over a, a two-year time frame. Oh, and that's why the habit part of it is so important, particularly for high-value business models. Because, yeah, if you're selling consultative services, you can be all blazing fire and pay the rent. But if you want to build something that's meaningful, you got to instill that habit where you're building value on a day-to-day basis that other people can't constantly obstruct your ability to do that. Even consulting, a lot of times what happens, right, is you have all these clients you have to service and you spend all this time servicing the clients. And then as soon as you get done with them, you realize you didn't spend any time nurturing your sales pipeline. And now it's all dried up because you know you spent the last four weeks delivering this client project. Whereas you know if you spent an hour every morning prospecting. So that's the idea. It's like identifying these tasks that butter your bread and then they become these like indubitable rocks. So it's like, it doesn't matter if your client's mad at you. You wouldn't know that, right? Because you would have blocked yourself off of email for that time that doesn't, you don't get distracted. You do sales during that hour. So you think about this, you know, your weekly calendar is this mason jar. And you, if you put the rocks in first and then you put in the pebbles and then you put in the sand, you know, the pebble fills in the cracks between the rocks and the sand fills in the cracks between the pebbles. And you can actually get all these things into the jar. But if you start with the sand and then the pebbles, all of a sudden, how are you going to squeeze the rocks into the jar? 
And what happens is the rocks start to build up and they're like the rocks of Christmas past. They'll never get to see that value. And people make compromises. I noticed one of your rocks is your exercise time. And we've all been in the position where it's a busy day and you say to yourself, "Uh, maybe I'll just get a few more pebbles in here and put that exercise rock aside. Well, surely you pay for that eventually. You pay for these compromises. Right. A lot of times you pay in lagging indicators, right? Like, you know, you don't exercise for a long time. You don't see the effects of that until whatever, six months, 12 months, 50 years down the road. Same with like prospecting, you know. But your habits are your leading indicators. That's a very fascinating way of thinking about it. So our first one, I'm loving this. This is great. The first strategy. 90-day sprints. Organize your projects in 90-day sprints. The second strategy. Plan with goals, build with habits. And the third strategy is put in your rocks, then your pebbles, then your sand. So organize your weeks with these protected, and this is what Cal Newport would call these protected areas of deep work. It's deep work, yep. And deep work is even just defining what deep work is to you in your life and business, I think is a really worthy task. You know, asking yourself, what is going to be protected, even if people are yelling at me or someone's mad or someone needs a response or whatever, what's going to get done? That's sort of like taking responsibility and being a leader in your own organization. All right. So our fourth strategy today. Use courage and wisdom, not labor to make money. (laughs) Okay. All right. You still got me. Explain this one. Nassim Taleb, the author of The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile, he tweeted this a couple of years ago and it was just kind of like bouncing around in the back of my head and I kind of had a breakthrough on it last year. That When you talk about, oh, I want to be more productive, you can really break it all down into, there's three ways to do that. One is you can work harder, which works up to a certain point, right? Like if you're kind of slouching around and you're doing five hours of work a week, you can probably get some more juice out of that. Sure, you can work eight hours a day or 10 or sometimes even 12. Right. So you got some juice there, but eventually you hit, you hit a threshold, right? You can only do so much. So the second thing people do is you go, okay, I'm going to work smarter. I'm going to figure out all this outsourcing stuff. I'm going to get some people on Upwork. I'm going to get Zapier set up. I'm going to set up some zaps and automations. So I don't have to do this stuff manually. And so you get to this and you go, all of a sudden, you're still kind of not getting done what you want to get done. And usually the highest leverage thing, and usually the last thing people get to is, how could you be more courageous in what you're doing. So for me, this hit home with when I published my book, it wasn't a work harder or a work smarter thing. I wasn't working more to do that than I've been working on other projects. It was just a scarier project for me. I had, there was a lot more of like, who am I to write this book? Why is anyone going to listen to me? A lot of what Stephen Pressfield would call the resistance, right? Which is that kind of voice in the back of your head that's telling you, you know, you can't do this, you're going to fail, that sense of imposter syndrome. Say you wrote like a really good white paper in your industry that you feel like is going to, is worthy of the attention of people in your industry. But all you do is you like email everybody you've already talked to before and you say, hey, take a look at my white paper. You know, I wrote it. I hope you enjoy it and refer to your friends or whatever. But you know that there's like two or three people that you could reach out to and like ask them, the famous people, the luminaries, or maybe someone that you one time met at a networking party but never really followed up with. That's like a small example of that courage is saying like, hey, those one or two connections would be worth like the 40 people in your inbox that you've already been talking to and you feel comfortable with. The example I think of maybe three months before 
the end of jobs, when my book came out, my kind of marketing plan, I was like, I'm just going to put this up in the sidebar of the blog and just see if anyone wants to buy it and see how it goes. And I had a, a friend who was like, if you really... You know, who was the friend? This was Rob Hanley. Okay. I won't quite use the word she used, but he was like, if you're going to do it, do it. Like, don't just like put it up in the sidebar of the blog. Like, you know, you spent a year working on it. Like, launch it. You know, put down a list like, here's all the big podcasts in the space. And it took me an afternoon to like write an outreach email, which is, you know, it wasn't that there was that much time. It was like, oh God, you know, I'm going to email Rob Walling, who's like, got this great podcast and this would be awesome. Yeah. We don't want Rob Walling thinking bad about you. I don't want Rob Walling thinking bad about me. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how uh, so much of this just comes down to your mindset and your view of yourself. And particularly if you go into the woodshed and you do good work for a year, then it would have been a shame had you not had the courage to stand behind your work. So our four strategies are, number one, operate in 90-day sprints. So instead of working in parallel, work in sequence. Number two, plan with goals, build with habits. And strategy number three, put in the rocks, then the pebbles, then the sand. Strategy number four, is use courage and wisdom, not labor, to make money. Interesting. Now, we were hanging out the other night, and it was Sunday. and We were having a nice Sunday stroll, and then you went off to review your week and to do sort of an individual planning session. Can you describe to me what that's like? What do you do during that session? So that is my, that's kind of my rocks, pebbles, sand session. So I'll look over my calendar for the previous week and my task list for the previous week and basically ask myself what went badly or what didn't I get done that I said I was going to get done and why? You know, is there something, am I avoiding writing Rob Wong the email because I'm freaking out about it and I don't know what he's going to think of me? And then I'll go ahead and plan out the rest of the week. So I'll lay out my calendar and I'll figure out what are my rocks for the week. And then the pebbles in the sand. So then you have meetings I need to get done or kind of like the small things I need to get done and work those in around the big stuff. It's important too to consider like how this adds up over time. You, know, you see people that have good working habits and these are habits, right? Like I was almost going to ask you about, I know that you like lock yourself off of your computer and you've done all these fancy things and all that, but I just thought to myself, you know what? He's cultivated a habit. And so, yeah, you can do all these fancy things at the beginning. You can lock yourself off the internet and all that. But like, once you get in the habit of your knowing what your deep work is and like that is it. And like when a distraction comes up during the deep work, you plow through it. Or like when you feel a little sick during your deep work, you plow through it. Like that's, you scheduled it. You realize the importance of it being there. That's why you scheduled it. And you've gotten yourself into a habit, you know? And so this stuff gets easier is the idea. And it, but it really pays dividends if you can manage to sustain it. Well, it compounds, right? I think I used to be one of those people that like poo-pooed the like productivity tips, tricks a little bit, like, you know, you're kind of missing the point here, but all these things, the strategies, the tips, the tactics, you know, you get a little bit better every day. And after a year, you know, that adds up to a lot. Cool. So one of the things I want to talk about, if you're willing to stick around, this is like, let's just have a little bit of a nerd out at the end. Okay. So we're going to, I think we should like roll the music or whatever. And like, all right, if you're a normal podcast listener, just go about your day and get productive. We're going to stick around and nerd for a little bit. So the backstory to this podcast is that if you found this show intolerable, you should have heard our first draft because literally we had a document. I don't know what we were thinking, but there was like a hundred bullet points on it and we just listed all this stuff. Six pages of bullet points. (laughs) 
here's what I want to do. I want to do a challenge right now to share like some of the top, let's call them like tips. So we talked about strategies early. Let's talk about tips, small things that delight you, make you more productive, have made a difference over time for you. So Newsfeed Eradicator for Chrome, it's a Chrome oh. plugin. It's, it will take you five seconds, 10 seconds to install. This is the one I, like the, I recommend this and I get like long emails about how much it has transformed people's lives to install this plugin. It does exactly what it says it does. It just makes your Facebook newsfeed go away. It makes your Facebook newsfeed go away. Amazing. And it changes your life. I'll tell you what, I did this. I honestly, I just got to say, I think Facebook was making me anxious. I really do. I think it was making my life worse. All right, let me share one. I was in the Dynamite Circle six months ago, surfing around, and this crazy man posts something in there. He said, look, this is a community full of entrepreneurs who travel often. I think you're insane for not bringing external monitors when you travel. That was kind of his thesis. And this is something that uh, I had thought a lot about, but not like, it's funny how simple things can affect you because I thought I miss my monitors when I'm on the road. I always do. And occasionally when I get apartments, I get external monitors, but I never made the connection to bring my external monitors with me. And here's like my little mantra in my head. So I travel with a 27 inch Asus monitor. I put it face down in the bottom of a full size luggage and wedge it in there like just with my clothes. I don't do any special packaging. It's super simple. It hasn't broken yet. I've been doing this for six months and I travel a lot. My mantra in my head is I'll get there a little slower, but when I'm there, I'll be much faster. Yeah, my case is a little bit bigger. I check it in. But when you set up in a new apartment and the first five hour chunk of deep work is done on 27 inches instead of 13, it makes a huge difference. Like immediately the first hour when you've been on the road for a whole weekend and you've got a hundred emails to respond to and you need to look at spreadsheets to respond to half of them and you got a split screen going it's just a game changer let's each do maybe one one or two more yeah since i'm doing the tools i'll stick on the tools another one super simple jump cut I find this gets under-recommended, but it stores the last 15 things you copied, that you command copied. So I know this happens to me all the time. I'll like cut something or copy something and I'll go, I'll close the window and I'll go something else. I'm like, oh, no, an hour ago I copied this thing and I can't remember it was a password or something else. And so it just keeps a running list of those things. Very cool tool. And I'll end with something akin to the Facebook news eradicator. For any long-term listeners of the show, I'm going to sound like a complete broken record right now. But I just want to repeat myself because of it. what I feel like. It's like this tactic has Lindy principled its way into repeatability. In other words, it's been around for a long time and I think it'll continue to be around for a while. And it's super critical to being productive, I think. And it's sitting down and learning Gmail shortcuts. Did you even remember that you knew how to do this, by the way? When I log on to people and they don't have shortcuts enabled on their Gmail, I'm like, oh, man. And you watch them clicking around like it's the Stone Ages, like they're pumping water out of the ground and carrying around in buckets. I mean, okay, two things really quick. It takes 15 minutes. It is a bit of a pain in the butt. I guarantee you, you will not, you will thank me. You will not regret it. If you learn Gmail shortcuts, you'll be twice as fast. And hat tip to Noah Kagan move your trackpad up to maximum speed. It's weird for like five minutes and then all of a sudden you're just faster on your computer. All right. Sold. Do you have any parting shots? I mean, 
We're in New York, greatest city in the world, kind of expensive. Most expensive city. Nice. You're working on a new book? Working on a new book. The idea changes every two weeks, or it's kind of morphing. It's in that nascent. Let's talk about what you're working on. You're, you're writing an essay about entrepreneurship every other week? Yeah, got an essay coming out every other week. I'm working on the book and then working on getapprenticeship.com, which I might not have talked about. So getapprenticeship.com. Let me challenge you to define an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship is a two to four year commitment. What I'm selling at least is a two to four year commitment to work inside a fast grow small business or startup to learn about how business works. An apprentice is something that we've talked about for many years that it's because entrepreneurship, it's hard to learn about in books. It's best off learned as you're doing it. And so there's sort of this education that only business owners can provide, which is here's kind of the, the wheel of the car. Now you can feel what it feels like to drive the car for a little bit, you know, kind of play and learn with other people's money. Why is that different than just an employee? I think kind of the implicit or explicit agreement being made is if you're hiring someone, you're a business owner, you're hiring someone to come work for you in an apprenticeship role, what you're saying is you expect a tremendous amount of growth out of them as opposed to you go hire a, maybe a virtual assistant or a contractor that's someone you're bringing in. You're basically saying, hey, I've got these established processes that are running in my business and I just need you to sit on them. Just kind of keep them running. And what you're going for when you go for an apprentice is you're saying you're going to have access to a lot of resources here inside the business and you're going to have some you know, access to knowledge and being able to learn from me and other people in the business. But what I expect of that is I expect you to grow this thing. This isn't you know, kind of a come in and maintain it and keep everything chugging along. It's an up or out way, which is you need to move up in this business or you're going to go out. I have an idea. I just had a breakthrough concept. I'm going to pitch it to you. I need it. Part of the reason you're doing this is because you've seen so many people have an incredible amount of success, right? Like we all can imagine... 10 apprentices off the top of our heads who like had a life-changing experience and the business changed a lot too and everybody wins. It's kind of magical, but it's hard to define, right? Here's a definition, potential. An apprentice is like an executive assistant or a right hand who follows you through every functional area of the business. Now, in a traditional business, that person would be called something like general manager or, or senior vice president or C-level or CEO. In other words, it would be someone who has their hands in every functional area of the business would be at the highest rungs of the business. Therefore, in most small businesses, you would never hire that person very early in the game. Instead, what you would do is what you recently mentioned, you would hire a salesperson and you would say, you're in charge of sales. You would hire a customer service, you're in charge of customer service. You'd hire a marketing person and you'd say, this is what we can afford for marketing. You know, Here's X amount for a marketing salary. You would very rarely bring someone in and say, I want you to be the general manager. I want you to look at everything. I want you to double check my quotations. I want you to make a sales pitch to this new strategic client, right? But if a young person who wants to do all those things eventually in their life comes in and says, look, I'll do all that stuff, but I'll do it at a third or a quarter of market rate because there's a synthesis that like, I'm trying to skip 10 years of my career and you're trying to get that kind of support without paying for a general manager or a C-level person, then we can cut that deal together, basically. Does that resonate with you? I think that's the expectation that like within 12 to 24 months, you're going to be general manager level. I think the way it usually starts out, like I know that every time I write an SEO optimized blog post, it adds $1,000 a month of revenue. And so you're going to come in and you're going to write 
an SEO optimized blog post every month. And we're going to talk about the business. And within 12 to 24 months, you need to have hired someone else to do that. And you need to be stepping up into this general manager level role. Aide de camp, I think kind of captures it all right. The chief of staff. Into like the military thing. Yeah, chief of staff. The problem with chief of staff and aide de camp, it's, it's complex though, because where apprentices go wrong is where entrepreneurs use it as a cheap way to get labor, basically like virtual assistants. There's a responsibility on the side of the entrepreneur to expose the apprentice to the business as a whole as opposed to just dropping them in and saying, here's my platform, make your living off of it. The ones that succeed from what I've seen is you need both the apprentice and you need the employer to have like a proper time frame, like thinking about this in terms of years as opposed to in terms of months. Like, so like the business owner that hires an apprentice for the first time and they're used to working with contractors or you know, employees they've hired with established skill sets. You hire a, someone to write blog articles for you and they're a, it's a contractor and that's what they do. They're a freelance writer and like the first two stink you fire them because it's like you're a freelance writer this is what you're supposed to do and these two blog articles you wrote suck right right? but what you're saying with this apprentice is like of course the first two are going to suck because they're not a freelance writer you know if they could run a freelance writing business they probably wouldn't come work for you you have to be willing to be the master if you want to have an apprentice and the apprentice has to have the same perspective of you know sometimes i'm i have to there's like grunt work that has to get done and i've just got to get it done you know, the best apprenticeships I've seen, I think the apprentices could have started their own thing and been successful, but they couldn't have been as successful as quickly at this scale. You had a great interview with Corey Ames and Jake Pull. And so Corey worked for Jake, started for working for Jake as an apprentice. And Corey had a he had an affiliate business that was successful, that was working, that was making money. But, you know, through the apprenticeship, he was running a 20 plus person, multi-million dollar marketing agency within two years. And there's no way he gets to that scale on his own. Very cool. All right. Getapprenticeship.com. Taylor Pearson, The End of Jobs is the book. And uh, you're practically a co-host on the show. You have a free ticket to come back whenever you want. An honor and a pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening. Big thanks, Taylor Pearson, for being such a fine host. A lot of listeners have been requesting some old school TMBA apps recently. And I hope you enjoyed this one. This was, we just flipped on the mics and went for it. Yeah. I hope maybe there's some nuggets in there. If you've got any productivity tips for us, any feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. I'm going to post show notes, everything related and mentioned in this episode at tropicalmba.com slash stress-free productivity. All right. Thank you for joining us. And boss man and I will be back next week. Same time, Thursday, Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.